Welcome everyone, this is Carlos from SeedCamp. I'm here with Simon Murdoch at Episode 1 Ventures. And today we're going to talk a little bit about not only Episode 1 and kind of the things that Simon looks for in an investment, but also kind of the experience that led to him becoming an investor and, and what he brings to, to a lot of the companies that he works with. Uh, we've jointly invested in a, a few companies and so I've had the pleasure of working with him uh, over the course of the time that I've been at SeedCamp. Actually, one of the very first few deals that, that we did together was one that was uh, when I joined SeedCamp back in 2010. But um, let's go even further back than that to college. Okay. Uh, what did you do right after college? Um, so I, I'm quite old. Uh, I'm in my 50s now um, and I was at university at Cambridge, did physics and uh, I happened to do a sandwich course which meant I went to work for GEC Marconi, a company that no longer exists. Uh, in Chelmsford after I graduated from Cambridge, spent about a year there and, and hated it and decided to go off and do a PhD at Brunel University in artificial intelligence. Uh, that was in the, in the 80s, in the mid 80s. Uh, and then when I graduated from the PhD, got the PhD, I happened during that process to do a bit of freelance software development work to supplement my income and I went to work for that software business straight after the PhD. Okay, so yeah, you, you did everything from studying pretty much the hardest thing that is known to men and then straight into software development. Yeah, yeah, and, and actually in the 80s, it was very early for the software industry. Um, and I went to this uh, small software business that happened to be doing bespoke development work um, in old-fashioned languages, what used to be called 4GL languages. And one of the things they, they got into was, was uh, publishing and book selling systems. So we built royalty management systems, customer order systems for bookshops, stuff like that. And, and over time, I mean, I, I, by it was sort of then the mid 90s, I'd become the managing director of the company because the founders uh, had left to go and do other things and left the business to me. Uh, and so I, 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 in that period of about uh, eight or nine years, um, I, uh, from the mid 80s to the mid 90s, I kind of learned about business by being uh, uh, almost schooled by some more experienced guys running a business for them, if you like, uh, and uh, went from, from being a pure techie to being salesman, understanding about marketing, how to do accounts, uh, all that sort of stuff. So it was a great, great learning experience, actually. Yeah, actually, let, let's dig deeper into that. So, I mean, you clearly came in at the point where you were doing the development and mm -hmm. then you kind of worked your way up to, the, to effectively being CEO of the organization. Yeah. And there's probably a couple of lessons learned there. One of them is managing a group of, of developers. Uh, were all the developers and the entire team based in the UK or was there any kind yeah. of distributed team? Or? No, it was all, and, and actually, because the, the company, it was, a, it was a tough existence. It was, I, I like the phrase I use is, because it was a kind of business doing software development work, it was a kind of feast or famine situation. When we'd got some big contracts, there was too much work to do uh, and uh, not enough people, and it was a nightmare. And when there weren't enough contracts, we didn't have the cash flow, the company would lose money, and we'd, we'd shed people. Um, we, we weren't smart enough at that time to, to have contract workers in, um, in an efficient way. That was quite early in the industry. So, but I, I think the, thing I, the main thing I did learn was I learned how to sell, how to market, I learned how um, accounts worked. Just got a breadth of everything because it was such a tiny business. I don't know if you know of a movie called Local Hero, um, which is about a town in Scotland uh, where, where there's one guy that basically does everything. Uh, it felt like that, running this, 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 this early stage business or small business, uh, doing software development in those industries uh, where the team would fluctuate from sort of eight to 20 and then sometimes back down to eight. And it was a bit of a nightmare. 
Um, but but by, I mean, this is what most entrepreneurs find when they're running a you know move out from a big company to actually run a business. There's huge amounts of things to do, yeah. and actually the thing I found personally uh, and and was most useful was the sort of people that roll up their sleeves and just do anything are incredibly valuable to the organisation. Mm. And you get other people in, in your organisation um, that uh, you know very regimented and you do what they want to do, and they're not terribly useful in a startup. Yeah. Um, but anyway, that that experience was amazing because then in the mid '90s uh, the internet kind of kicked off, um, and uh, we saw what Amazon was doing in the States. We already by that time had uh, customers like WH Smiths and uh, other bookshop chains. And we went to those guys and said, look, we, sh we should develop a website for you to sell books on the internet. Uh, and most of them said, nah, no, it won't really catch on. Um, and so, uh, and then another one uh, actually chose not to use us and, and did their own thing, Waterstones. And um, so I decided to set up a company called Book Pages uh, which was a bit of a dangerous thing. It was competing with our own customers by setting up a, um, an internet uh, site to sell books on, on, on online. So that's a good, that's a very interesting story. I, I want to hear how it develops. But before we go to book pages, let's, I think there's two things that I'd like to, to hear kind of your views on for, for a founder who's maybe technical sure. and is moving away from that technical role as you did early on to becoming CEO and the key challenges of, of, of kind of maybe the, the one or two tips that you would give to somebody who's maybe a technical founder yeah. who's now put in the position of being a CEO and the sort of things that you're like, ah, if I had only known that as a, as a technical founder uh, now in the position of CEO that I wouldn't make mis mistakes again. And, and secondly, once you're in that role of CEO and potentially having to be part of a sales process, what advice would you give them in terms of smoothing out those cash flows that are kind of annoying that you said were mm -hmm. kind of plenty and drought and plenty and yeah. drought? So, uh, well, the first, the first thing is that not all technical founders necessarily have the desire or, or capability to, to, do, to make that transition. I think a really important feature in order to understand if that is you is, is what are you like with people? I remember my, my mother saying to me, just, just because you're clever at school doesn't mean you're going to be successful in life. It's actually how you deal with people that matters. Mm -hmm. So I would encourage um, folks who are thinking of making that journey from a more technical situation to, to running their own businesses, uh, that, that you really have to focus on, on getting good with people. Um, and the more you can experience, do experience of that and, and find out how to do that, the better. The second thing I did a huge amount of was I just, I, I love... I love learning. Um, I think uh, being a lifetime learner, I still feel I'm learning a huge amount even, even now in my 50s. Uh, I, I think that uh, everybody who wants to be successful needs to be spending uh, a certain amount of their time learning. I, I tend to learn pretty well from books, uh, but also by going on courses, all this sort of stuff, listening to podcasts, of course. Um, and uh, But the, the crucial thing, uh, if you want to make the transition from technical to general management, is to make sure you learn about how um, uh, the people stuff like HR, you need to learn about how finances work, um, what accounts are all about, um, uh, you know, you need to economics when you're building a business, uh, you know, there's just sales and marketing. I mean, sales is, is such a, a, a strange, um, uh, it, it's, a, it's a, an art in itself, it's an unusual thing that you have to learn about how to persuade people, all about benefits versus features, you know, there's just there's so much to learn and, and I just enjoyed that over the years. So. These sort of um, eight or nine years at, at uh, the software business in, um, in my early career were just a great um, place for me to, to learn huge amounts of lots of different things. Mm. Uh, so I suppose 
if you sum it up to one word, is you have, you've got to make a transition from being a technical person to being a generalist. The more you know about everything that works in business, the more successful you can be. Okay, and so then when you took that, and I guess maybe at some point you felt mastered that, been doing that for nine years, I'm going to go start my own company. Uh-huh. What was, was that just because you felt like that was something that was calling you, or was that something that you just saw as a huge opportunity? To some extent, and as we'll get to kind of your yeah. views as an investor, and in a way, would you have invested in yourself with that idea? Um, I kind of, I think when you're a, an entrepreneur, you are investing in yourself. So the answer is definitely yes um, <laughs> to that piece. Uh, you, you have to, uh, I did at the time, you, when, when you decide to put all your eggs in one basket to build a business, you're putting a huge amount of your time and effort into that. And you, you've, you've got to really believe in what you're doing and that you can make it work. Um, I think that, um, you know, it's, it's how, did my, how did I make that decision? Uh, it, with the internet was really taking off back in the sort of, it was 96, I made that decision to set up book pages, middle of 1996, uh, and it was clear what, what uh, was happening in the US in, in terms of the internet. Uh, it was it was exciting, it was, it was you know, it was life-changing, and obviously that was a bit earlier than the, the big sort of internet bubble was sort of 99 and 2000, um, so I was seeing things a bit earlier than, than some other people did, but... Um, it, it, it was calling me. You have, you have. When, when there's such disruptive change going on, uh, you want to be a part of it, and it's, it's, it's much more fun than building boring systems for big companies. Mm. And so, how did that go? And, and sort of ultimately, when, when did you transition away from that? Yeah. So, well, it was difficult. I, I suppose that um, one of the things that I found difficult was just leaving the previous business. So, I, I uh, had a sales director who promoted to become the CEO of that previous business, and I still did a fair bit of time trying to help support that. But the call of the uh, you know, e commerce, as it was back then, um, uh, you know, just starting, was, was very strong. Um, and so, I, yeah, I just, just, just had to really work at it. It was, it was hard work, but um, it was exhilarating. I mean, the early days were very difficult as well because there were, were no tools to, to build systems with. There was no very little in terms of hosting. Our first servers for book pages were actually in our office, and uh, as as the business built, uh, they were starting to overheat. So I remember one one time we we left a window open with a um, sort of pipe to, to try and sort of cool down our servers, and they got nicked in the middle of the night. Oh really? Yeah. Wow. So we, we we had a paging. We built our own little paging system to monitor the service. <laughs> and we got caught in the middle of the night and found all our servers had all been stolen. In those days, it was nerve-wracking because, uh, again, there were no tools and, and we had people's credit cards wow. saved on the system for the, for the latest orders. So you were just scared, crazy, that uh, uh, there'd be fraud from that. So, I mean, the world is so different now than it was in, in 1996 in terms of building an internet business. Yeah. Um, I mean, I guess there's still, founders still today have different sort of hard tech modes. It might be not your service got stolen out of the window yeah. with credit card information, but kind of in somewhere in the middle. It's always in the middle, and, and it's always nerve-wracking building a business because it, it's so competitive these days, and it always has been, I guess. But it's so competitive; it's hard to make a business that really works financially. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's not easy. So, how did that ultimately kind of resolve itself? And yeah, well, so next? Uh, well, the, the the headline is in a couple of years later we sold to Amazon, uh, but it was very tough in between and a great experience for me because I think that what we're trying to do, at episode one, is very much have empathy with entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. Uh, three out of the four of us as partners have been entrepreneurs ourselves. And, and I found in 97 in particular, I was trying to raise money from, from VCs and, and angel investors, and it was really, really tough. I remember 
uh, one of the people I applied to and uh, sent me a letter, all snail mail, saying, you know, we're not interested in investing in your business because we've already invested in an internet business. You know, and in those days, people <laughs> felt that it was a conflict being one in internet company to be in another one. That's hilarious. Crazy. So it was very, very tough. Uh, we had a number of financial crises as I yeah. tried to raise money. And so having, having been close to you know, the near-death experiences of the company running out of money so, so many times just gives you a strong empathy of how tough it is to be an entrepreneur. Mm. Uh, as an investor, I've never forgotten that. You know, I've, I've been a VC uh, three times and um, an angel in lots of businesses as well. I know how, how scary it can be and, and how tough it can be to be mm. an entrepreneur. So you sold to Amazon, and the, I mean, did you stay with Amazon? Yeah, yeah, for for nearly two years. Um, so yeah, I mean, the whole process of selling to Amazon was itself nerve wracking. I've now been lucky to be involved in more exits since then as an investor, as a non-executive director or chairman. And uh, it, it's always tough selling a business in, in that uh, it's nerve wracking. You never know if it's going to quite work and if the deal's going to come off and be the right sort of terms. But we we sold to Amazon in April '98, and I stayed at sort of just um, just under two years um, with them and that was the most amazing experience for the first nine or ten months I actually reported directly to Jeff Bezos because I was the UK country manager as they call it it was still a relatively small business in those days and used to go over to Seattle every six weeks or so every four weeks but every six weeks I would see Jeff and report directly to him and it was fantastic I mean he's a, he's a very charismatic guy you know, ruthless competitor, a very tough driver of people, uh, a lot of which has been written about. But but he's very charismatic and, mm. and motivational to, to work with. Uh, so that was that was great. And uh, the, the amazing thing from a business point of view was, and we've got a lot of that now in, in Europe. But in those days, we just weren't that competitive in the UK and Europe mm-hmm. in terms of having global ambitions like companies like Amazon and you know others have. Uh, and that, that's really rubbed off that experience from people like me and, and, and many others that have worked with American businesses. It's really rubbed off on our ecosystem here yeah. that uh, now we're much, much more ambitious than, than we were back in the 90s. On the point of ambition, uh, there are a lot of founders out there who obviously are increasingly ambitious to the point of being a, wanting to be a unicorn. But as we, as we both know that there is a, a quite wide range of uh, mergers and acquisition options and windows mm-hmm. over the course of let's say several steps of valuation you know yep. double digit millions triple digit millions and then billions and sometimes the first deal that you get offered is probably the best one you get offered and there's that, that sort of that quote that somebody said somewhere but it's like you know your first offer is probably your best offer mm-hmm. and in some cases some businesses will get approached by the likes of Amazon as you did and sometimes with larger players with more, more cash flow or equivalent levels of cash flow. What advice would you give for anyone who might be either wanting to approach somebody like an Amazon or is, you know, and, and obviously feel free to include experiences that have happened since mm-hmm. that time, but what kind of advice would you do in, in, in structuring your discussions as a founder with a potential acquirer, even if perhaps you feel like it's a little bit too early? But yeah. you know, in, in that, in the spirit of the quote. Yeah, I mean, the re- really important thing is you, you don't really want to be saying you're going to sell yourself. So the very first lesson or key part of this is concentrate on building a great business and don't don't concentrate on trying to sell yourself. Mm-hmm. So the the ideal situation you want to get in is where you've you've built something that's that's a strong number one, perhaps even number two. But you really want to own a niche and an important space and be the market leader, have great traction, great growth, great unit economics, 
just build a great business is, is, the, is lesson one, one, two, and three really. If you want to, you know, obviously trade sale um, is, is the most uh, common exit. And if you want to ultimately be bored, you've got to have a, a great business that owns that niche. And then you want to ideally wait until people approach you. And generally as a founder, you don't want to be the one making the conversations happen uh, initially. You, you want to have a corporate finance house helping you with the sales process. Uh, and they, the, I don't, the perfect outcome is have a great business, great unity economics, own a space, and then one potential acquirer approaches you, you hire a corporate finance house to alert other potential acquirers that you might be for sale if the price is right, get an auction going. Um, that, that's the ideal thing. If you, if you try and put, a, put your hand up or put a flag up saying you're for sale, the price is not going to be that great. Mm. On the point of the corporate finance house, I mean, I think I've heard conflicting advice from people on whether or not you know, it's premature or whether or not to overkill or whether the founder should lead the discussion. But I've heard the opposite, which is actually founders should be focusing on scaling their company, not on behaving and talking the language of the yeah. corporate debt teams. And also... The corporate advisors also have an understanding of the differences between corp dev preferences because it's yeah. just like VC funds, each one a different view. What's your views on that in terms of like a company, especially not a company of 100 employees plus where like you actually have media revenues, but especially for the companies that might be, might be approached with maybe smaller teams or earlier in their development because they're being acquired either for their staff or being acquired for key pieces of technology that are strategic for the buyer, and but the exit's probably somewhere in, this, in double digit millions. Sure. So the key thing to realize is that if you're being acquired by a bigger company, they, it's one of the key things they're buying is the team. They're not, they're not just trying to buy an asset and you won't leave immediately. A significant portion of the management team will need to continue for one, two, three years post-acquisition. So it is really, really important that the, the founder or the CEO and the top management team get to know the potential acquirers in that process because that's a key part of the sales process. What I'm talking about is that um, with the corporate finance house should be the people that kind of open the discussions and create the shortlist of the potential buyers. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's really important, as you hinted at, that while those kind of discussions are going on, the business carries on scaling. If, if you start to flatten out, you're going to damage your, your sale um, possibilities. because uh, So if your eye goes off the ball because you're the CEO and you're uh, spending all your time on the sale process, uh, and the underlying business is not continuing to grow, then then that's that's bad. Mm. So so the corporate I do think corporate finance houses add enough value to pay for themselves in most circumstances. Mm-hmm. Obviously, they're in sales, uh, not only of your business, but they're selling to you that they will do amazing things. And and uh, my personal experience from a number of exits has been it's a bit variable what you really get from the corporate finance house. But even so, you you really want to have that separated position where somebody can speak on behalf of the company saying we might be able to get the company to do XYZ to potential acquirers mm. without actually committing the company. Yeah. Having that sort of person at, at an arm's length where the acquirers know the corporate finance houses are frankly full of a lot of bullshit. Yeah. But but they can they can sort of fly kites for you without you committing the business. Yeah. So I, I do think they add a huge amount of uh, value that's worth the sort of one to three percent or whatever it is, then they'll, they'll take depending on the size of the deal. Yeah. Uh, and you've got to concentrate on carrying on getting traction while yeah. those things are going on. No, it's very helpful, very helpful. So after that whole process and working with Jeff Bezos, and of yeah. course, like, you know, to some extent, there's amazing stories that follow from that. Um, you mentioned, obviously, that there were other companies. What were those two other companies that, that you started as well? 
Um, so actually, there's only really been one other main company I started with, with my own sort of sweat, if you like, where I was um, spent a lot of time on it. I set up a company uh, called Friends Abroad, which was to help uh, as a social community for languages. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that uh, ended up having a lot of users, but I found it very difficult to monetize. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I um, ended up selling it to a German competitor and didn't, didn't make a profit from mm-hmm. the amount of effort and time put in. Uh, but that was a, that was a great learning experience in itself because there is a tendency to to believe that as an entrepreneur you, you have to have this persistence factor. You've just got to keep going and keep mm-hmm. going. And, and and in that particular company, I was funding it as well as being the. It started off not not being the CEO, but mm-hmm. in time I became a CEO and really trying to make it work. And uh, and although I do believe that persistence and doggedness is incredibly important, sometimes you, you just have to listen to what the market's telling you. Yeah. Uh, and eventually pull the plug. Uh, yeah. And and in that particular case, it was it was sort of a poor sale to a German competitor of the assets of the business. Mm. Uh, it, it was it had to wake up and smell the coffee eventually that, that it wasn't working. So again, that gives you empathy with entrepreneurs that that that's it, it is very tough actually starting a business and making it work. You know, yeah. Um, so you can make money. No, it is, and it's it's interesting how you you you've had different types of businesses. You know, you, mm. you've had sort of a very services, development, hard yeah. stuff, then you had um, publication and media, and then you had effectively what sounds like it was more of a social network. Social network, network, yeah. So you've jumped around, and and now maybe fast forwarding to, to episode one, maybe what made you choose the investment thesis that defines episode one? Maybe just for the summary for the audience, like what is what, yeah. is what you look for? What's episode one represent, and, and what is it that you find if, interesting? If I may, let me tell you just very quickly about episode one, but then also talk a bit about my angel experience. Yeah. I mean, episode one ventures, we've got a... Uh, enterprise capital fund, 37.5 million. We're investing in rounds of up to two million pounds, and we like to be the first institutional investor. So generally, firms uh, in the startups will have built a product, maybe got um, some customers, sometimes not, um, and uh, we, we just want to get through the sort of technical risk of does the product actually work. And once once a firm's got that far, then we like to invest and, and help them really prove their sales model so they can raise a proper Series A. So we're, we're sort of seed preferred investors mm. and we're typically putting in 250 to a million pounds. Now, I wind back, my previous experience after leaving Amazon was we, we did a, a BC fund. Uh, we had money from Chase Capital Partners and we, we did well. We invested in Betfair and um, uh, ScanSafe and some other businesses and, and made money in that fund. Uh, but it took a long time to play out before Betfair went, eventually went public. So I had a long time period where I did angel investing investing in things like Shazam, Zoopla, uh, Love Film, uh, Shuttle, which got sold to eBay, and so on, which I did all those deals as an angel. And I, I really enjoyed effectively being a professional angel managing just my own money, where you know I'm, I'm the money, but also the guy kind of running my own sort of uh, investments. That, that was great experience, but what I found was that you end up getting very busy, and it's actually, I enjoy being a VC more than being an angel because then you've basically got a small team. Mm. There's, there's six of us within episode one and we can talk together about the investments. We can help the investments collectively uh, and, uh, and we're also investing other people's money which means you've got more clout with the companies and more ability to help the companies. Mm. But the angel experience was, was awesome because uh, I've been through the whole cycle with a number of companies. So I helped Shuttle right from the very beginning, became Tom Allison's chairman at the beginning, was on the board all the way through and, and helped um, you know, in, in the exit when he got sold to eBay. 
And so having the experience of doing a number of uh, businesses like that, you know, Love Film obviously got sold as well. Uh, Natural Motion, another business I invested in as an angel and eventually got sold to, to Zynga. It's, it's been been great experience to see all that, mm. and but now now we're putting that into practice with episode one with the with the team around me. Mm. So one of the anxieties that most founders have, and a lot of the founders that I work with always have the same questions: like, what yeah. does it take to impress Simon? Yes. Yeah, what does it take? Is it MRR? Is it a product that's really sexy? And and let's try to get as specific as possible for for the sake of the audience. It's like. What are the key things either, is, is, it, is it a fluctuating thing? So four years ago, it probably was less. Now it's more about the numbers and metrics. What, what is no, it? I think, I think this, this, this is a great question and I'm going to give you an answer which you won't be satisfied with, I'm afraid. <laughs> and and the, the key thing is that as a VC, we've got a fund. We have to find just 25 to 30 companies. And and yet there's hundreds and hundreds of companies out, you know, thousands of companies out there. But And there's, there's hundreds and hundreds that approach us each year. And we can only make six or eight the most 10 bets in a year and so a lot of it is about instinct and it's uh, there's a kind of I'm being too honest here because most people think there should be a kind of slide rule you can run over a business and mm. know exactly which one to do but you have to get the passion as a, as a CEO and founder you have to attract the passion of, of at least one of us within episode one that we really believe in you and what you're trying to do and, and that you're trying to do something great and big mm. and and the first step is just winning that that sort of Emotional really. battle, yeah. Emotional battle. You have to get at least one of us, ideally two or three of us, to be excited that, wow, this is just great. Mm. And then everything else after that is, is this kind of CFO mentality of making sure we're not making a mistake. Mm. So there will still be a slide rule over the traction. There'll be references done on the, the, all the, the founders and you know, a lot of uh, thoughts about how big the market is. All that sort of stuff follows to make sure that that, that it's, it's a sensible decision for us to invest in, mm. in a startup. But the honest answer is you've got to excite us. So you, let's let's play on that a little bit because I think with founders, to some extent, when they read a blog and they say, yeah. look, this is what investors are interested in from an MRR perspective or a metrics perspective, it's a very yeah. quantitative answer. Yeah. And the good thing is that when it's quantitative, it's easy to say, well, I'm either hitting these or I'm not. Yeah. But your answer is actually quite dangerous in, in, in the psyche of a founder because they're thinking, crap, how do I know what it takes to impress somebody? And maybe what we can just break it out to different parts. Yeah, but I, you, you see, I think you're approaching it the wrong way that you have to mm. impress everybody. This is a many, uh, investment is a many to many issue. Mm. You've got many companies, you've got many investors. Yeah. What you need to make a deal happen is just to excite and attract one or two of those investors mm-hmm. to want to put a decent amount of money in. Mm-hmm. So, what I'm saying is that we'll get hundreds of people approach us. We, we will have an instinct about which ones we want to spend time investigating. And if, if for some reason that's not your company, there's nothing wrong in that. No, yeah. You know, it's just it, well, you, it? you, you need to move on to other investors and spend time with other investors and excite some of them. So there will still be the MRR stuff. Yeah. There's, still, there's still, by far the best thing is to, to get traction in something. You, if you can show that customers you know, whatever type of business you are, whether it's um, customers coming through marketing or direct sales organization in enterprise sales, you've just got to show that the customers want what you're doing yeah. and that um, uh, you're, you're starting to get that interest and that, that then the unity economics of what you're doing will work. Yeah. And, you know, so, so we, 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 don't, we don't like businesses. We would never invest in Twitter. Now, we'd have missed, obviously, an amazing investment. Yeah. But we, we, we're not interested in things that don't have business model that kind of that we can understand that will make right. sense in due course okay so if I divide kind of if I understood what you said yeah. and I'll divide into three buckets just for simplicity it's one of them is 
that you believe in that the business model is a functional one. Yeah. The second one, which you said is secondary, is the the metrics that sort of demo- demonstrate that. But the primary one being what's impressive to you in terms of founder. The founder spoke to you in a way that you connected with them and believed that yeah. they were the right team to execute this. So if we try to... There's, there's, a, there's another one as well, which okay. is that we have to believe the market's big enough. So there's, there's many, many businesses that come to us where... Even if they really work, they're going to be one, two, five million turnover businesses. Yeah. Uh, and as a VC, we, we just can't help those sizes of businesses. We have to find the ones that can be 50 or 100 million or more yeah. in revenues in due course. Even if that's seven, 10 years out, right. it has to be something that can be big enough to attract the valuations of hundreds of millions or more. Yeah. And, but arguably, the market ones, it's a bit of a tricky one too, because sometimes um, some companies are opening up a market that didn't yeah. exist. Yeah. Right, like and, and the proxies for the market size are completely off the. That's off fine. The that's fine. Yeah, no, and we yeah. and we make guesstimates on that in other. You triangulate in different ways. Yeah. So so yeah, we're not expecting the current market for your niche yeah. to be proven because yeah. otherwise it's it's too late. Yeah. You know what you're doing needs to be disruptive in some way to mean that you know let's say if yeah. the particular let's say online estate agents we've invested yeah. in eMove. State agency, we know how big that is. Yeah. Even when eMove and Purple Bricks and others can completely win the market and charge much lower fees, it'll still be a billion or more market. Yeah. So but big enough the, to support great businesses. Of the four things that we, we talked about right now, yeah. still, if I go back to the founder bit, it's the most sort of qualitative one of the lot. And I think maybe just to help founders understand when an investor says, that they feel a connection to the founder, that they feel that this is the right fit between you mm-hmm. as an investor and the founder. If we had to try to sort of provide some substance to that answer yeah. and say how much of it is, for example, they have had to have been a serial entrepreneur or how much of it is that, that they, they have to have had the technical chops to be yeah. able to execute. I mean, it's, it's not really that thing. So let me just explain it better. I, I, yeah. I, I understand your, your challenge. You have to excite us that what you're doing is, is interesting, can be big. It's that. Yeah. And then, then it be, then it be. So people should approach us if it's a software-driven business based in the UK, and um, it, it's something where it's a, a, you're attacking a decent-sized market, and you're raising up to two million pounds. Yeah. So just anybody who's in that space, approach us, and, and, and we'll we'll love to like put a slide rule over it. Our process is we usually ask people for a pitch deck up front to send by email, and then unfortunately it's just the way of the world. There's so many businesses we have to reject quite a lot quite quickly. So. We reject a lot without having a meeting, unfortunately. Mm. But we'll, we'll try and give you some feedback about why that is, if that's the case, and you might be able to, you know, argue back, and maybe we're wrong, and we'll meet mm-hmm. you. So we meet a lot of people. We meet about ten new per week, and then it's at that point when you have the first meeting is when you have to excite us about the market and about you, that you're going to be one of those special ones, mm. the six to ten a year that we can invest in, and that's that's largely about. Uh, explaining the, how you're disruptive in the market, a bit about the unit economics, a bit about the market size, all the standard stuff that should be in a pitch deck, uh, but feeling the team that can make that happen and make, make the market really work. And the reason that you can't run a slide rule over the metrics in our case is that we're trying to invest early enough to mean there aren't really many metrics. Mm. We, we like to invest when you know, you've, you've built the first version of the product and you might have five customers or even zero. Mm. Or you might have a revenues of 20k a month, but if your revenues are 100 or 200,000 a month, you're you're too late and too too expensive for us mm-hmm. given the size of fund we've got. So at that very early stage, it's very difficult to have any real metrics mm-hmm. to, to prove. We're wanting to, to meet you and 
be excited about the thing you're trying to do. Mm. Um, perhaps slightly on the cultural side of things, some founders, especially founders from Eastern Europe, which I know you, you work with, have an anxiety around the differences in pitching styles and communication styles in, in humility versus not. Uh, and you know, if you, if, if you view presentations online, there's so many varying different styles. How much do you feel like that's something that they should be worried about or not at all? Not at all. So we've invested, in fact, I, I, if I'm honest, I, we like to invest in companies where the founder isn't brilliant at presentations, isn't brilliant at PowerPoints, because we tend to find the best value in those. You know, the, the, everybody wants to invest in the, the, uh, the, the consultancy guys that have got a fantastic pitch in an enormous market and are brilliant at, 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 um, at persuasion skills, so that those deals get competitive. Mm. Uh, we, we like to uncover value, and so... What we're trying to do is to, and I'll give you a good example, is James Hind, the founder of Carwell. Mm. When he first pitched to us, his PowerPoint was dreadful. He was a very lean-back person in the meeting, didn't really, really sort of engage, but we knew there was what he was doing was interesting. Yeah. We've coached him over time. He's now got much better PowerPoints, much better accounting um, uh, knowledge. His, his, uh, his confidence in meetings is much stronger, mm. and his metrics are fantastic. So he's raised lots of money in two subsequent rounds since we first invested. Mm. We like that sort of thing. So... It's a long answer to say, don't obsess about your presentation style, don't even obsess about your PowerPoint. As long as it's got the right content, it doesn't really matter how beautiful it is. Yeah. Um, and the content has to demonstrate that what you're doing is something that is disruptive in a way that means you can become a big business. Um, if, you can, if you can show us that through, through the materials, then we'll meet you. Mm. Uh, and then it's about being personally passionate and knowledgeable in, the, in those meetings mm. to make us want to help you. Excellent. Well, there you guys, there you guys have it. Um, the four things that Simon looks for, the experience that he's brought to the table as both a founder and, and angel investor and now venture investor. And if any of you fit the criteria of what episode one's looking for, feel free to get in touch with him. Thanks, Simon, for joining yeah. us. And let me just add, the way to do that is to, to you can sign up online on our uh, form or send an email to info episode one.com. Excellent. Brilliant. Until Thanks, next Carlos. time, guys. Bye. Thank you.